This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Preconception care occurs starts from your grandmother. That's what we know. When I went through naturopathy, it was like three to six months now. We now know it starts with the grandmother. So what happens to our grandmothers and to our grandfathers as well, because it's his gametes that's helped conceive our parents, has a bigger influence potentially on us than what happened to our mother. There are several examples where epigenetic inheritance occurs. And epidemiological studies have shown that prenatal and postnatal environmental factors influence the risk of developing chronic disease and behavioural problems in adulthood. I think the normalising around all of this is vitally important because stress will kill them, you know, if we're really honest about it. It will switch on more genes and more rapidly than possible. I often share with my patients the story of my experience and how that impacted Sophia and and my um, journey with that. And I think that really helps them to understand that there's a bigger picture at play here. This is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, the podcast that's open-minded enough to take in all sides of a clinical story. You'll hear from researchers, doctors, naturopaths, nutritionists, and patients. We look at common clinical presentations through a different lens. It's open, frank, and sometimes controversial. Nothing is off limits. Will it change the way you treat? We'll leave that up to you. In season one of Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, we look at children's health. We talk to experts in the field who will take you into their clinics and share their experience. We'll hear the inspirational stories of change from patients and their families along their healing journey. I'm Tony Chambers, and this is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds. Let's start the season right at the very beginning, way before conception. Dr. Rona Cregan is a nutritional biochemist. She has extensive experience in clinical biochemistry, molecular genetics, and nutrition. Genetics are the set of instructions that the cell uses to make proteins. So the genes provide the base code, which is transferred or transcribed to a messenger RNA and then translated into specific proteins. So genes are the code on the DNA using specific sequences of nucleotide bases that code for specific amino acids, which are then assembled according to the instructions. Now, some genes are fixed, like the colour of our eyes, for example, and other genes are very dynamic and have to be switched on and off in an appropriate way. Because with all the thousands of biochemical reactions occurring in tissues at any one time, the cell needs to know which genes to switch on and which to switch off to avoid biochemical chaos and conflicting and futile processes. So epigenetics is the selective switching on and off of genes in response to environmental and metabolic cues. And it can be thought of as a library where the genes are the books in a library and epigenetics is which book is removed from the shelf to be read. 
So although our genes don't change in terms of the code, epigenetics and gene expression has to. And this is influenced by age, environment, diet and lifestyle and the presence of disease. And so abnormal gene transcription or epigenetic expression can have the same effect in terms of disease as variations or mutations in the DNA sequence itself as occurs with classical inherited diseases. And so, I mean, I'm guessing that, that I mean, we're, we're going to talk about some of the, the negative influences, um, but obviously this was developed as a, an ability for us to change uh, and adapt to our environment in a positive way, so, to, so as a protective mechanism, I would imagine. Yeah, that's exactly right, because our environment changes all the time and we obviously need to adapt in terms of our energy generating processes, our immune system, how we fight infections. And that's all going to be influenced by our metabolic resources and obviously what we're exposed to in the environment. Epigenetics is the broad range of modifications to the genome that don't change the underlying genetic sequence. There are three ways this happens in the body, via methylation, modifications of histone by acetylation, and the use of non-coding or microRNA. There are times of increased susceptibility when epigenetic reprogramming takes place. The first is immediately following fertilization, when the sperm and the egg fuse to form a zygote. The second is during primordial germ cell development. These are the cells that will later become the sperm and the eggs. This is important because the environment at this time impacts their development. I find it really fascinating, but also a little daunting in a way. And there's part of me that just wants to say, don't blame your grandmother. That was Jane Hutchins, naturopath and registered nurse. She's a household name in the fertility and reproductive health space. So it's around that first creation of us as a, an egg or a sperm, if it's a male fetus, at that time. So whatever happens to our grandmothers, and caveats, to our grandfathers as well, but I'll focus on the mum, grandmother, what happens to her affects her, it affects her fetus, and it affects the reproductive cells, the gametes in her fetus. So if her baby has sperm, or eggs, it will affect those. And that's really quite extraordinary. And the the range of effects that can happen, or the range of influences that can affect that are things like her getting sick, her being malnourished, her living through a famine, a war, trauma. So it could be intimate partner trauma, it could be in a war zone. A whole range of things can be traumatic. Undernutrition, overnutrition, she might have undiagnosed and uncontrolled diabetes or thyroid disease. Uh, there's no limit to your imagination to the things that could go wrong, which is a bit of an issue, but they affect us as the grandchildren more than her child, which is just extraordinary. There are many terms used in the literature, but essentially this is what's known as multi-generational exposure. It's the inheritance of epigenetic information between generations in the absence of direct environmental exposures. And a good example of this was children born during the Dutch famine of 1944 to 1945 have a higher incidence of cardiovascular disease and obesity if their mothers were exposed to famine in the prenatal period compared to children born to mothers who were not exposed to this famine. 
So this may provide some rationale of the passing down of stresses or unhealthy lifestyle habits to increase the risk of cardiometabolic disease in subsequent generations, regardless of the inheritance of any true genetic predispositions, as many of these chronic diseases don't have a single causative gene. So in this Dutch study, it is thought that this was caused by hypomethylation or activation of the insulin-like growth factor gene. Other studies have also proposed a link between prenatal stress and nutrition exposures and things like schizophrenia. And so as famine is not usually an issue in Western society, a more concerning fact is the epigenetic modification of the genome by overeating the wrong foods and exposure to environmental chemicals, in particular the endocrine-disrupting chemicals and what we now call obesogens, which are molecules that inappropriately regulate lipid metabolism and adipogenesis to promote obesity, specifically by activating the peroxisome proliferator-activated receptor gamma. And many environmental chemicals, such as the organotins, which are widely used in industry as a biocide, for example, in antifoul on boats, these have been shown to induce global changes in DNA and histone methylation, leading to altered epigenetic signatures and obesity phenotypes in unexposed generations, suggesting that epimutations can be inherited and chemical exposures during fetal development can induce these epigenetic changes in the germline, leading to obesity and cardiometabolic phenotypes in subsequent generations. Since we're on the topic of environmental exposures, let's bring in Nicole Bilsma, a passionate crusader of environmental medicine. A former naturopath and acupuncturist, she's a straight shooter, and she agrees that the Dutch famine was the first time we really understood transgenerational epigenetic exposures. So taking a thorough history from the grandmother and the mother is critical because those exposures during wartime, we're talking like my parents are Dutch, during the starvation had huge implications on gene expression. Um, you know, a lot of people are fatter now because during the war when they were mothers were not fed and they were malnourished, then the body produced larger fat cells and more of them just in case it went into survival mode next time, which never happened after the war. So that's why that obesity and metabolic disorders were high in those those children. Nicole Bilsma says genes don't mean anything without looking at the context of exposure. These gene variants have been in the gene pool for decades in those generations of, of people. And yet now it's coming out because our environments are so toxic in terms of wireless technologies and electromagnetic fields and mould and environmental chemicals, especially pesticides, flame retardants and solvents. So we need to focus on the exposure history far more than we look at the gene variants. What we notice with the gene variants is that we have SNPs in um, phase two liver detoxification pathways um, that make people very sensitive to toxicants and to mould-related exposures. So it's in the detoxification that's an issue. How does intergenerational exposure work in the modern context? We know many of the environmental chemicals are lipophilic, which means they're fat-loving. They're passed through the placenta. They're passed in the breast milk because breast milk is primarily fat. So unfortunately, everyone that's been tested 
in these bio, these large biomonitoring studies, especially in the US, where they test thousands of people every five years, you know, the National Health and Nutritional Examination Survey, they found DDT and organochlorine pesticides in everyone, and they still do because they're still being passed on through the placenta, through the breast milk, even to this day, you know, three generations after organochlorines and DDT were banned, and it's still breaking down in the soil. So we need a global look at, at, at the impact of this on human health because Pesticides, especially of all the chemicals in another study that I published, I was looking at environmental chemicals and its impact on human health. And the chemical came, that came up time and time again were pesticides. Pesticides are antibacterial. That means they're anti-human. It's not a coincidence that many of the preservatives used in women's skincare and most of our products are pesticides because they kill bacteria. So when we changed farming practices in the 50s and 60s, introduced the organochlorine pesticides, the organophosphates, the carbamates, the pyrethroids, we completely changed human health enormously. And that was a, a big a turning point, I believe, in the development of chronic illnesses, which we are only seeing the magnitude of this, especially neurodevelopmental disorders like children with autism and ADHD, which is just a pandemic. And of course, pesticides in an elderly brain equals Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. And what about mould exposure? How much time have you got? <laughs> mould is in everyone's house, let me just tell you that. Is it a little problem, a little bit of mould, little problem, big bit of mould, big problem hidden? Oh, my God. I run the only government-accredited mould testing and electromagnetic field testing in Australia through the Australian College of Environmental Studies, which is my registered training organisation. been doing it for 20 years. And these two suckers are the big causes of most illnesses, I have to say. So what happens if a pregnant woman is living in a water-damaged building? What is the impact not just on her own health but on the future health of her baby, as an example? There's more and more research coming out that when women are pregnant in water-damaged environments, that leads to preterm birth, many of them giving birth at 28 weeks, 34 weeks, you know, early. And that has huge ramifications for that child's health down the track. These kids often have food allergies and they have multiple allergies. I've had five families in this scenario where they were pregnant during the uh, inner water damage building and all of them had these types of symptoms. So watch that space that's coming out. And there's a, about three studies on that already about pregnancy and, and unborn fetuses and their impact in water damage buildings. So low birth weight. Now, if you think about it, low birth weight is what eventually caused environmental tobacco smoke to be legislated because it impacted an unborn fetus. Now, we're seeing this in water damage environments. The problem is with mouldy environments is that it's so ubiquitous, especially in new housing stock, because we have this ridiculous no notion we need energy-efficient homes that are so tight that just breathing out your water vapour three litres per day per person, the house can't cope with that. So now it has condensation of mould. We've got waterproof membranes that only last seven years. So new builds within seven years have significant water damage issues, compromised waterproof membranes, condensation issues. I wouldn't be living in a new house without really good louver windows and other things like that because they're a disaster and there's a lot of litigation going on as we speak. Leah Hechtman is a highly experienced and respected naturopath, very well known in the area of fertility, pregnancy and reproductive health. She's always at the forefront of research in her area of expertise. Leah is keenly interested in environmental toxicity and she's shocked by what she's finding. It's downright scary. You know, and I was looking at these papers that were looking at flame retardants in, um, you know, the highest incidence and presence of flame retardants was detected in Norway, in the Norway population, 
because the animals had the highest incidence of flame retardants. And the theories that the authors were purporting was it was related to wind patterns, that the flame retardant toxins had survived for so long in waterways, in earth, in all of those other things. And the wind patterns were also moving the flame retardants to the northern hemisphere because of the position of the earth and the movement of the earth. So, you know, we're talking about a country that you would not associate flame retardants in as being the highest source. Um, I don't know, my brain would have thought of China, to be honest. Um, mm. But, you know, and but yet it's not. And you think of Norway and their health benefits are, you know, numerous, but they also have the highest consumption of animal fat when you look at it per capita, you know, compared to other countries in a healthy way because of the cold and all that sort of stuff. And then you start looking at the countries that are, you know, closer to the polar ice caps and things like that and how their consumption of fat has changed so dramatically in the last 50, 60 years because fat is where toxins are stored, which is then having an epigenetic effect on the genetics of those people, which is then having, you know, a huge environmental impact on the polar ice caps. And then we're having, you know, the theories that are coming out now, which are as the ice caps are melting, what was frozen in the ice from all the various ice ages is now in our waterways, is now in our exposure. It's mind-blowing. And overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. And your brain kind of goes, holy holy moly, what am I going to do with all that? And that's where as a clinician, I think we have to educate ourselves to, you know, see the bigger perspective of it, but equally to find the gentlest path for our patients you know, find the gentlest path for our recommendations for them that will give the best health outcome and that will educate them for lifelong changes and will have a community ripple effect for them and their community and, you know, really start to use our position as clinicians and researchers or academics or whatever we are in a way that can really help the betterment of everything. It really is mind-blowing and potentially overwhelming. It gets even bigger with the research you've found about the extent of the impact of the microbiome on children's health. Scary stuff, scary stuff. So what we're talking about here is the idea of the intergenerational microbiome, so what the mother and the father have as their own individual microbiomes and how that creates the embryo. And then that embryo has a microbiome, even though we don't necessarily have testing for it yet, but it's in process in IVF mm-hmm. communities. And then the microbiomes that they're exposed to within the mother. And then if the mother has bugs or the father has bugs that are more harmful, you know, mm-hmm. so bugs along the lines of various infections, strep infections, staph infections, urea plasma, whatever it might be, the baby will be born with those bugs present through their development in utero. And that will be where we have to really start to look at it and go, okay, so our understanding now is that we're basically all full of bugs. Mm. You know, some research will say 56%, some will say as high as 93%, whatever, we're bugs. Mm. And the balance of our bugs is good and bad and they all have a purpose and everything wants to survive. So if we can see the child with an imbalance of those bugs and more of those unhealthy bugs, what children are we creating? And then why is it that some children are born with bugs in their brain, in their nervous system, and it's probably because of in utero exposure. It's a very bitter pill to swallow for parents that have children that are challenged in situations like this or kids on the spectrum, et cetera. And please know that at no point am I saying that this is a cause of blame, but it's mm. a lens of understanding so that we can then try to work out how to fix it. But a developing nervous system in the exposure of a harmful or toxic bug is guaranteed to cause a scenario like pans or pans. And obviously, this is, these are things we can work on in the preconception period. Absolutely. And it's, again, more justification and reason as to why preconception care is vital for every single person. 
And then we extend it where all of the things that we've done in preconception care is how we treat our children and how we treat the next generation and how we treat the earth and how we can actually maybe help this planet. This is something you're passionate about, isn't it? A wider impact on the world? When I look at the research with environmental medicine, and I think the piece that we really need to start taking stock of is it's all very well that we can look at a person's personal care products. We can look at, you know, they're using glad wrap in the kitchen. Um, We can look at the micro details or we can look at the bigger picture. And I think that as our understanding of Earth, of Gaia, and our understanding of all of the environmental changes between countries is evolving. You know, we're looking now at wind patterns, at ocean transfer, you know, all of those sorts of variables. We're now starting to realise that, you know, we can have a Fukushima radiation crisis in Japan and we can see that radiation detectable in Alaskan and Canadian waters and the fish and the crustacean and the seaweed that's present there. So we have to evolve ourselves to the place where we realise that the interconnectedness within everything within Earth cannot be underestimated. And similarly, you know, you start, and I mean, this is a huge topic, so we'll just touch on it in a minor way, but, you know, you start looking at the concept of the environmental microbiome versus the human microbiome versus the animal microbiome versus the insect microbiome. And then you start realising things along the lines of, well, you know, if I use pesticides and I use all of these various toxins in nature, I am killing those plants. I am also using those pesticides, which are affecting the bees. The bees then aren't having those plants. And the pollination process from bees is how we get lactobacilli species. So lactobacilli species that are detectable in animals that we consume, that are detectable on plants that we consume, that are present in our body, because we have that process and that interconnectedness with bees, with plants, with animals, with the earth at large. So it's this concept of every single thing that we're exposed to is having an impact with everything in every part of earth. And I'm highly probable it's also having an impact in the greater universe. We just don't have the science yet to understand what that's actually doing. And so I think it's important as clinicians to start to look at it really from a bigger and wider lens and instill that understanding in our patients both for the you know the care of earth but also for them to realize you can't just sit in your apartment with your wi-fi and your mobile and your microwave and your plastic glad wrap and have this high disposable nature of life and not think that you're not affecting your health the health of everyone in your building your suburb your state your country the earth and everything that it touches. And how do you strike that balance in clinic when you know all of this, you know that this list of don't use that nail polish, don't use that um, that eyeshadow or whatever anymore or that skincare is doesn't really get to the heart of it. There's so much going on. How do you strike that balance with people? I think, you know, the primary tenant with all of my practice has always been to not cause harm, as I'm sure it is with everybody else, and that's, you know, the Hippocratic Oath. And I do think that we need to be mindful of the harm that we can cause from undue stress, from, um, you know, just chastising our patients and making them feel less than because of their decisions. And so my approach with clinical practice, which I'm sure it is similar with others, but it's very much around the relationship that we share and we identify what their goal is and we work out what is the gentlest way to achieve that goal and hierarchically we order what are the things that need to be achieved. And so, you know, I'll, I'll always say with patients, you know, these are my non-negotiables. These are the reasons for my non-negotiables. And these are the things that we're going to work towards. And I'm always normalizing, you know, I'm always sort of saying to them, 
you know, I've been in practice for this long, you know, I've been in the health community for this long. I can have the kitchen that I have, you know, I don't have any Teflon pans, I don't have any plastics, I don't have this, whatever, whatever. But I don't expect you to necessarily, you know, in the next week, jump there. But these are the things that are number one. And every so often, you're going to tackle the next little piece. And it's not ideal, but the stress that we can cause them is either going to make them run from treatment, and then you've lost them, and then what have you done? Mm -hmm. Um, or it's going to give them so much stress and anxiety is rife. You know, people are under enough stress with the way the world is. That's not our job. Our job is to ease their stress. And a fertility couple that sits in front of me, I'm going to get rid of all the talates as number one, probably. Mm. And we're going to talk through that. And then, you know, then we'll tackle flame retardants and then we'll tackle PCBs and we'll tackle organic diet and we'll tackle this. But no one can do everything all at once. There is no one on the planet that can do that. Now, I mentioned the Dutch famine, which has an impact on the metabolic health of future generations, but maternal trauma, for which famine would be an example. But obviously, there's toxicological exposures, viral infections, lifestyle choices, poor diet. They're all a source of cellular stress, which activates the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And this axis is also the major manager of our metabolic resources, which makes sense as the role of the stress response is to mobilize fuel um, to provide the resources to remove the person from danger. And so any chronic physical or psychological stress will also disrupt the HPA axis. And this obviously affects um, metabolism. So all of these have the potential to have a negative impact on the epigenome. I fell pregnant and uh, in that pregnancy, throughout that entire pregnancy, I experienced a high level of stress, probably one of the highest in my life. So that that sort of set the scene for my pregnancy. Um, the other thing was that I had a couple of issues throughout that pregnancy. I had to have surgery at 17 weeks. Uh, and I also have two uterus. I have the very um, unusual situation of having two uterus. But what that meant was that my baby was breached the entire pregnancy and I couldn't, she couldn't move because she was sort of stuck in one uterus. And so what that meant was that I had to have a C-section with her, which of course results in IV antibiotics during birth. And the the stress of the pregnancy situation, uh, along with postnatally, I was a solo mom the whole way through, it, it just really impacted my milk supply. And I was pretty much unable to breastfeed. So I pumped uh, for four months, I pumped sort of four or five times a day for four months and nearly drove myself insane. But the stress of the pumping and Sophia's weight and everything else, I think just impacted my ability to produce milk. You know, the effect of that sympathetic nervous system on milk production is is just so uh, well researched. So it was a very, very um, tricky time and it didn't really set Sophia and myself up to have an easy route on that front. That was respected Sydney naturopath Emma Sutherland, who knows only too well the impact of stress on a child's health. How much do you think your preconception stress impacted Sophia's health? 
I think I think a huge amount. So she had cow's milk protein allergy as a a, a tiny baby. So as I wasn't able to feed her, we had I had to comp feed and you know, she would have these severe reactions to even, you know, good quality organic formula. So she had the cow's milk protein allergy. She had severe silent reflux. She was on PPIs for an extended period of time because they just couldn't control it any other way. Uh, she also had gluten sensitivity from, you know, I didn't start gluten until 12 months, but immediately she had reactions. So she had food intolerances and severe constipation as a toddler and then I think from the PPI she then had a strep gut and then parasite you know it was just this ongoing situation that I feel was instigated by the way she was born and my state throughout pregnancy I really feel that that had such a problematic impact on her that she um, was, you know, the, the, the epigenetic effect really showed her, you know, she's, she's very atopic and, um, you know, we, we've had a lot of issues in that, in that way. And what about in your clinic, Emma? Are you seeing more couples under psychological stress? Yeah, yeah, I do. And I think it's becoming more and more prevalent, which really concerns me. Uh, But I think that the effect of high cortisol levels during pregnancy and how that impacts the neonate is profound. And I think it's something that as practitioners, we need to really screen our patients for even before pregnancy, what their potential stress levels are, you know, what support mechanisms they have around them. Like I, I really feel that prevention obviously is best, but trying to mop up afterwards is so damn hard. You know, with Sophia, it was sort of four years of extensive gut testing and protocols and retesting. And, you know, now thank God she's she's really healthy, albeit she has now developed asthma in the last six months. So I just see that you know, the ripple effect of having these influences in utero and as a neonate, they really do ripple out across future health. And the research really shows that, you know, we know that the way a baby is born can really impact their risk for things like atopia, the asthma, the eczema, the hay fever. So I think going back to that prevention is key. Is, is so important. What are the major stresses you see patients facing in your clinic? I think that what I see in my uh, demographic of patients is that they are doing too much. They are multitasking. They have quite serious careers at the same time as trying to be a mother or being pregnant. And their ability to take the foot off the pedal is really impaired. And the first thing that always goes is self-care. And so you'll see that, you know, the food intake changes, the exercise output changes, things change that are not building resilience with that woman's health. So trying to get women to understand that they need to slow down is super, super important. And of course, one of the really interesting aspects is the impact of stress on the microbiome. It's really quite interesting. And there's so many prenatal influences for the baby. You know, it starts 14 weeks when they start swallowing amniotic fluid. 
and start basically getting their first exposure to bacteria and start colonizing their own microbiome from that point on. And there's some great research coming out about the placental microbiome and how that's impacted by our oral health and our oral microbiome. And looking at that mechanism, you know, we're not quite clear what that is, but it seems to be that the oral bacteria are then transferred across through the blood and then into that uterine environment. And so when you're looking at if you know we have a mum that has you know, gingivitis or issues with her gums, then that placental microbiome may skew so that there's more of a pro-inflammatory response there. So looking at how that affects the epigenetics is really fascinating. And many women, you know, vaginal microbiome is supposed to be lactobacilli dominant, but is it? You know, is it actually? So when women have a vaginal birth, are they actually inoculating their with that rich lactobacilli environment, it's not always the case. In the next episode of Between Clinical Minds, we continue the conversation with Nicole Bilsma, Jane Hutchins, Dr. Rona Cregan and Leah Hechtman around epigenetic influences. We look at maternal weight, hypertension, alcohol consumption, thyroid dysfunction, and we'll discuss some treatment approaches to help patients in their preconception period. Thank you for listening. We hope this podcast engaged and empowered you. And thank you to all of our experts. You can read more information on each of them on our website, bioconceptsengage.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode of Between Clinical Minds, please refer a friend and share the love. To continue the conversation, you can contact us at bioconceptsengage.com.au, where community is more than a concept. Thank you.